everybody. <clears throat> so, um, I spent a good amount of time last week with uh, our brother Susung, and uh, as you know, he was worse then than he is today, and um, he loves me so much that he shared his sickness with me, and I, I, didn't, he, he, I didn't get it as bad as he did. His, his was much, much worse, but... Um, uh, I share all that because my voice is, is a little weird, so if I do cough, it's going to go straight into the, <laughs> the mic, so I apologize. Hopefully, um, you know, it won't be too loud. <clears throat> um, I want to start today uh, with uh, a story that was on Good Morning America, the TV show, a few days ago, and has since gone viral. Um, it's a story that involves a school teacher and the students of her third grade class, this teacher has only three years of experience, a uh, relatively new teacher. And so uh, she confessed that um, she felt ill-equipped to handle some of the issues that uh, her students came with, um, a lot of it because they came from homes that were impoverished. And so in order to help her students, she decided that I need to understand my students better. I need to understand their background. I need to, need to understand like what's in their minds. Um, and as I understand that, then maybe I can help them better. And I can be a better teacher, serve them better as their teacher. Uh, great idea. So she came up with a class assignment for the class entitled, Things I Wish My Teacher Knew. And for this activity, she would ask her third graders to jot down something that they would like uh, her as her teacher to know about them. The teacher, in her words, describes the assignment. I let the students determine that they can answer anonymously. But I have found that most students enjoy sharing with the class. Even when what they know, uh, even though they know what they're sharing is potentially sensitive information or potentially embarrassing to them or to their family, most students want their classmates to know. This reminds me that, uh, you know, this is just a class somewhere in America. It's not a, like a Christian class or whatever, but what this reminds me is that God created us in his image, and being created in his image, <clears throat> we are created with this innate, undeniable desire to be known, to be known by others. That's, that's this desire that we all have if we're human beings. And we, we see this with this class. Even though these are embarrassing things that they might share, they get up there and they get excited because for them, they don't have this concept of you know, decorum and, and etiquette. For them, they just have this innate desire to be known. And so, given the choice to be anonymous, most of them did not choose to do that. So these little eight, nine-year-olds, they write their answers to this question, things I wish my teacher knew about me. Here's an example. I wish my teacher knew that I don't have pencils at home to do my homework. It's kind of a sad thing, um, but something that's common for these uh, families that come uh, you know, from impoverished backgrounds. Here's another example. <clears throat> there it is. Yeah, maybe we can get the lights. Thank you. I wish my teacher knew that I don't have a friend to play with me. 
I wish my teacher knew that I don't have uh, friends to play with me. Responding to this particular letter, the school teacher said, quote, building community in my classroom is a major goal for this lesson. After one student shared that she had no one to play with at recess, the rest of the class chimed in and said, we got your back. The next day, during recess, I noticed she was playing with a group of girls. The teacher continues, not only can I support my students, but my students can support each other. Very interesting. This teacher, to her credit, is really trying to love her students, right? And in order to love them, she wants to know them better. This is a great illustration of how loving and knowing are tied together, right? Loving and knowing can't be separated, right? Here's a thought that occurred to me as I was meditating on this idea of how love and knowledge of somebody, loving somebody and knowing somebody, you can't really separate them. When we begin loving someone, we also begin hungering to know them, to know their opinions, to know their dreams, to know their heart. And if we're lucky, they begin hungering to know those things about us too, right? Anybody here ever experience unrequited love? Right? We, we think about how, you know, maybe somebody we had a crush on early on in our years, and we, we want to know everything about them. We want to know what their school schedule is. We want to know what they're going to order for lunch. We want to know, you know, what they're wearing today, right? We want to know all these little details. And then, you know, by some stroke of luck, what happens when you find out that person also wants to know about you? Me? <laughs> this person wants to know about me? Wow. And that just sends you to the moon, right? This desire to be known. It's exciting because being known has a connection with being loved. These two go together. So today the topic of our message is <clears throat> this theme of God's love. Specifically, we're going to look at uh, two passages. Matthew uh, chapter 22 and then the passage uh, that we read today, 1 John 4. And we're going to look at kind of three points out of those two passages. Number one, the sequence of true love. The sequence, the order of true love. Number two, how our love for God grows. And as our love for God grows, so our knowledge of God grows. Our knowledge of God's thoughts. Our knowledge of his passions. Our knowledge of his dreams. Our knowledge of God grows. And number three, what does all this mean for you and for me? Okay, so number one, the sequence of true love, the sequence, the order. As a young person, I had this belief that when we love someone, we have to do everything within our power to please them. And in so doing, we can make those people love us more. That's how I, this is what I thought, okay? This is just... It's not like something my parents sat down and told me. This is, 
Uh, you know, it's just a combination of my upbringing and things that I saw on TV and things that I read and things that I heard from my friends. And I just kind of synthesize this idea of love. If you love someone, you do everything within your power to do everything to please them. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a, a great way to spoil, you know, if you're a parent, to spoil your kid, right? So, you know, there's some good things with that, some bad things with that. But that's, that's where I was coming from. So when I first became a believer, I just took that, I got to please the person I love, and I applied it to my faith. And so the more I did for God, I felt, the more I felt God loved me. If I do all this for God, God's going to love me more. Can you relate to that? You feel like, if I can just do more for God and volunteer more, then I'm going to gain more love from God. And maybe if I'm being more honest and frank, you know, this is something that I didn't know at the time, but I think looking back, I can say, the more I did for God, the more I felt worthy. So not only was I trying to get love from God, but I was trying to feel worthy. And I was trying to love myself. The more I did for God, the more I loved myself. Like, hey, look at me. I'm a pretty good guy. And I could love myself. Can you relate to that? Maybe you can relate to both at different times of your life. I'm trying to do things for God. And maybe he'll love me more. Maybe he'll bless me more. I'm trying to do things for God. But really, if I'm honest, I'm doing them for myself so that I can feel better about myself. I think we can relate, right? So let's look at Matthew chapter 22 for a second. <clears throat> and uh, I want to direct your attention to verses 34 to 39. And it's on page 828 if you're using your pew Bibles. <clears throat> and here's what it says. This is, uh, the Pharisees are trying to discredit Jesus. They're trying to make him look like a fool because they don't like that Jesus is getting popular with the crowds. So they gathered together, verse 34, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Verse 36, teacher, he's talking to Jesus, which is the greatest, in some uh, translations, it's what is the greatest commandment in the law? What is, which is a great commandment in the law? And he said to him, Quote, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. <clears throat> when I first read this passage, I felt that I had hit upon the secret to success. If all I need to do to have a successful life, to be loved by this great God of the universe, is love him with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind. That's it, right there. That's what I need to do. So as a good little, you know, dutiful boy, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, all my, with all my mind. 
What I didn't realize at the time was I was putting on myself a very heavy burden. And this was a burden that Jesus did not actually intend for me to carry. Why? Because it's impossible. It's not easy to do. Who here, if I were to ask, before God, are you loving God with all your strength, all your mind, all your soul, would stand up and say, I am. It's not easy to do. And yet, here's the greatest commandment. I felt in my young eagerness and and foolishness that I could do this. And so really, what I was setting myself up for was ultimate disappointment. I was setting myself up for this perfect recipe for spiritual burnout. You feel me? Anyone here go through spiritual burnout? Why is that? Because the way I saw Christianity, that wasn't... The way I saw it, that's not a relationship. That's a religion. It's oppression by rules that in and of myself are too lofty for me to attain. I was setting goals up for myself that I could never get to. And as a result, I would be oppressed and depressed. Nevertheless, this is all in hindsight at the time, Comically and tragically, I decided this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to love God first and foremost above all things. Well, as I'm doing this, you know, I'm thinking, man, I'm getting God's attention. You know, um, growing up, I felt like there were other kids in school and other kids in, um, I went to church, my my parents went to church, so I would go to church and, and I knew a lot of kids there. And Maybe you can relate to this, but, you know, when I'm like eight, seven, even a little older into like junior high, you know, there's always like the cool older guys and the cool older girls, right? And um, you go to church and, 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 you know, you see these, these cool older guys and older girls, and they're like just giving all this attention to all these kids, right? And I felt like I was kind of on the outskirts of that. I kind of felt like those were the cuter kids, the better-looking kids, the cooler kids with the cooler clothes, the kids who were smarter. Those were the kids who were more talented, like during the Christmas you know, concert. They were the ones who did the violin solo, and I'm there, there sitting in the pew next to my dad going, man, what, what am I doing? I can, I can build a Lego ship, you know? <laughs> Or somebody on the piano going, I'm like, whoa, and everybody in the church is clapping. Woo! And even I'm impressed, right? And I felt those were the kids who got most of the attention. So this is what I decided. Forget them. Who cares about them? I'm going to go after God's attention. And I'm going to love him with all my heart and soul and mind. And he will give me attention. He will give me the attention that I want. And I'm going to get him to love me more. And I'm going to get myself to love myself more. So I did all this stuff. And now, don't misunderstand me. Let me say a little disclaimer here. 
doing those things, playing violin for God, piano for God, having talents, do, you know, volunteering for VBS or Awana, all things that I did, those are not bad things. In fact, those are things that God wants us to do. Okay, So those are not bad. The actions themselves are not bad. They are not the problem. But the problem is, at the time, the problem was my motives behind the actions. So on the surface, everything looks fine. But my motives, my heart, what God could see, it was all messed up. It was all out of order. My motives weren't biblical. Why? Because my knowledge of God wasn't biblical. So let me explain. First um, John 4, let's look at First John 4. That's 10.23 in your pew Bibles. So I'm on my road, well on my way to spiritual burnout. (laughs) And here's this verse, 1 John 4.10. It says, in this is love. In some translations it says, this is love, colon. Not that we have loved God. Not that we have loved God. But that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is just an old word for like payment, substitution. Okay? This is love. You know, when you look at a dictionary, you have a word, and then what do you have right after the word? You have a colon, right? So if you want to know what, you know, I don't know, inevitable means, then you have inevitable, you look it up, and boom, colon, and then it gives you the definition. And in, in some translations, when we look at 1 John 4.10, that's how it actually translated This is love. Now, I had an idea of what love is from, you know, movies and TV shows and comic books and all that, right? That's what I thought love is, all those different things. And yet here we have, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, the actual definition, the literal definition of love. So we don't have to ask all these different sources, what is love? You know, is love just, you know, two people walking in a green meadow with blue skies and a song playing in the background, you know, and, and, and hopping and skipping and, you know, floating through the air? Is that what love is? Uh, maybe. I don't know. Well, let's ask God. God, do you have an opinion on this? What is love? And God says here, this is love. Not that you love me. Wow. That's kind of a slap in the face, right? Wait a minute. God, I do love you. Well, hold on. This is love. Not that you love me, but that God loved us and he sent his son to be the payment for our sins. You see, for me, I thought that the first step in my relationship with God was to love God out of my own 
effort. And then God will love me. But God's word here tells us what love is. Love is, colon, dictionary definition, not that I love God, but that God loves me. How do you love me, God? I'm not cute like those other boys. I can't play the violin like those other boys. I'm not as smart as those other guys. How do you love me? 1 John 4.10 I love you by sending my son to die for you. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, it's such a great verse. And if anything, uh, I want to ask you guys, it's just like seven words or so, I want to ask you guys to walk out of here having memorized this verse. If you don't remember anything else from the message, that's fine. If you remember this, I'm happy. All right, this is going to be awesome. You're going to love it. Verse 19, let's all read that together. Ready? We love because what? He first loved us. We love because what? He loved us first. Sequence. I can't love God to make him love me more. That doesn't work. What is love? Understanding and soaking in the idea and the thought and the reality that God, the creator of the universe, loves me. He loved me first. And then we love. Sequence. There's an order. I got the order reversed. Maybe right now you're in a season in your life where you're kind of confused with the order too. Maybe you're putting the cart before the horse when the Bible here is very clear. The horse goes before the cart. He loves us first and that produces our love for him. Well, as I was sharing, you know, I was on this road to burnout and it got to a point after many years of me you know, trying to earn God's love and make him love me more and make myself feel worthy like all those other people. And this went on into adulthood, went on into me getting married and having my first couple of kids. Those poor kids. <laughs> and so just a few years ago, maybe, well, now it's you know, 2001, 2002, around there, so it's been about... 13 years, I guess. To me, it feels like just a few years ago. I used to wake up every morning, and I shared this with some of you before, and I would, you know, like everybody else, you go to the bathroom, right? You look in the mirror or whatever. You do your thing in the morning. And do you know what the first thing I would do? The first, literally the first thing that I would do almost every morning was look in the mirror and say, I hate myself. Because everything that I tried, I was failing at. And even the, the simple 
greatest commandment, love God with everything. I mean, how hard could that be? It's so simple. What I didn't understand was, it is simple, but it's not easy. And so I'm doing this, I'm trying to love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And after years of doing this and not remembering that God first loved me, that this is not love, not that I love God, is it any wonder that I started to get resentful of God? You don't love me, God. Here I am trying to bust in my, you know, everything for you, and, and I don't feel loved by you. Where are you? Do you love me? Can you relate to that? I hate myself. I hate my life. This, everything that I had lived for was starting to just crumble and dissolve and make no sense. I didn't know what was, what was going on. I didn't know why, when I felt like I had the answer to all things, the greatest commandment, why I still felt so hateful of myself and so pathetic and just such a loser. Man, I hate myself. Well, this went on until one day, (laughs) woke up, same thing, go to the bathroom, and literally, I'm not kidding you guys, as soon as I, you know, I'm there, first thought that comes to mind is, I hate myself. And one day, as those words are coming out, God says, you know what, young? You might hate yourself, but I love you. I love you. Notwithstanding the fact that you hate yourself, every morning you come into this bathroom and you look in the mirror and you say, I can't stand that guy. I hate my life. I'm such a loser. Look at all those other people on Facebook. They're so successful and happy, right? <laughs> look at my pathetic life. And God says, Look. You don't like yourself, but I like you. I like you. I love you. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. I didn't know how to love myself. I really didn't. And to this day, that's still an ongoing struggle, learning how to love myself. But do you know what I need to do? I need to remember that the creator of the universe loves me. Why? I'm still trying to figure that out. But you know what? I'm good with that. I'm good with that. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life exploring that and discovering what that means in different ways. God interrupted this self-condemning tape in my mind and he pushed pause. He didn't just push pause. He took the tape out of the machine or... I guess that's outdated, right? He took the CD or the MP3 file or whatever, and he threw it on the ground. He stomped on it, and he put in a new tape, a new MP3 file. He said, read this, 1 John 4. We love, what? Because he first loved us. We forget And no matter how dissatisfied we are with ourselves, no matter how dissatisfied we are with our present worldly circumstances and and where we are in, in our position in life, here's something for you to think about. The fact remains that in the year 33 AD, the creator of the universe sent his son 
to give you an eternal life that you did not deserve. He willingly died. Why? Because somebody loves you, even if maybe you don't. And he is a son of God, Jesus. That means that whenever you're driving around on the streets of Silicon Valley, this ridiculous area of the country, of the world, and you see a cross, it, also, it means that when, when you're in this room, and for, unfortunately, there's no cross in this room, but when, you, when you're in this room and you see a cross, I'll be the cross for you for a second, right? We need to get a cross in here. Whenever you see a cross, you can never, ever, ever forget, never, ever, ever believe the lie that nobody loves you. Someone, if, even if nobody, okay, let's, let's be honest, even if nobody loves you, let's say, there is one person who does love you, and that's God. So when you look at the cross, that's what I think. When I look at the cross, I remember somebody loves me, who? God. I actually have to go through that in my mind. I see a cross, somebody, I'm having a horrible day, you know, I'm feeling like I'm not a very good person at my job or whatever, I don't know, maybe some of you guys feel like you're great at your job, I don't know. But I, I feel like sometimes I'm inadequate at my job, inadequate as a father, inadequate as a husband, inadequate as a friend. You know, I wish I could do more things for my friend. All, I feel all this inadequacy, and then I look at the cross, and instead of spiraling down into this feeling of unworthiness, I remember God loves me. Somebody loves me, and it's not just somebody, it's God. So as I began to understand this, that nothing I can do can make God love me less, and nothing that I do can make God love me more. There's nothing that I can do that can make God me less, and there's nothing that I can do that'll make God love me more. As I began to understand that, I began to grow deeper in my understanding and in my knowledge of God's love for me. Do you see again how as you know God, there's love. As you know his love for you, you want to know him more. As you know as he loves you, you understand that he knows you. And even though he knows you, he still loves you. You see how knowledge and love are interlinked. They can't be separated no matter how hard we try. This was amazing to me that God loved me even when I didn't love myself. And as a result, I would start to think more about God. I, was so, I, got, I fell in love with God again. This is our, our, the, the second thing here. When our love for God grows, so grows our desire to know that person's thoughts and desires. And so I found myself as just talking with God like, God, I, thank you for loving me. This is so cool. I just want to think about that for a second because it's so long, been so long since I actually felt that way. It's been so long since I actually felt like I didn't have to do anything to make someone love me. I didn't have to, you know, pay the bills to make my wife love me. I didn't have to be the fun, woohoo, clown dad to make my kids love me. This is so revolutionary for me. And I would think about God. And this is how it works. When we love someone, we think more about them. We want to know more about them. And so 
this question one day came to me. It just hit me. <clears throat> and maybe it's a question that you've asked people that you love. If you guys watch Korean drama, anybody watch Korean drama here? Some of you? Maybe a little bit? Okay. Inevitably, right, at some point in that Korean drama, the two love interests will begin to like, realize that they like each other, right? And as they do that, right, say around episode 20, usually, right, they'll, they, they, they ask this question. And here's how the conversation goes. They'll be like, hey, hey. So I was curious, yeah. I'm saying this in English, of course. What's your dream? In Korean, they would say, 꿈이 뭐야? Right there, 꿈이 뭐야? And the guy would be like, 꿈은, <laughs> you know, 행복하게 살래. You know, something like profound, right? But what they're trying to, what they're, what they're leveraging there is the fact, again, like we mentioned, everybody wants to be known. And if somebody asks you what your dream is, guess what? They're saying they really like you. Well, maybe a, on a romantic level or whatever, but they really, they're interested in you. What's your dream? I want to know what your dream is because I want to know you. Knowledge, love, tied together. And so I, I had this question occur to me, God, you know me, but I don't know if I know you very well. What's your dream? Have you ever asked God what his dream is? Hananim, gumi moya, what's your dream, God? What's your dream? What's your passion? I think that's a question we all need to ask. What is your dream, God? What's your dream? Tell me, I want to know. And our Heavenly Father's answer to that question is this. My dream, my passion, is my people. My children. My dream, my passion, is to be with them. Now, am I just saying this because I'm painting, this is in my mind what I think God would say, which is, you know, gray beard and white robe. This is what I would say, right? No! He actually said it in Revelation 21. He says it here in 1 John. He said it in in, in Matthew 20. He says it everywhere throughout Scripture. He says, my dream, my passion is to be with my people, to make my dwelling place among them. And we see this with the tabernacle. We see this with the temple. And we see this with Jesus. My dream is to be with them so much so that he literally became one of them and walked among us. Do you see? That's God's dream is to be with you. To dwell with you. And he says in Revelation 21, so that they will will call him God and God will say, this is my people. This is my people. You are my people. You are mine. You ask me what my dream is, young. That's my dream. Whoa. (laughs) Matthew 22. The lawyer asked, what is the greatest commandment? Singular, right? What is the, singular, greatest commandment? Singular, there's no S. It's not plural, singular. How does Jesus answer that question? How many commandments did he give to that answer? 
The question is, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, there are two commandments. Love God with everything and love your neighbor. Love one another. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? You asked, Jesus is saying, you asked me what the greatest commandment is. I'm telling you what the greatest commandment is. Love God and others. Love God and others. It's not two separate. It's one thing. If you love God, then you will love others. Where else does it say that? 1 John 4.20. Look there. Verse 19 says, We love because what? He, hello? We love because what? He first loved us. Thank you. You're alive. Yes. Verse 20. He says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. God is saying, if anyone says, I love God, but then hates his brother, he is a liar. Those are some strong words. But we need to understand it. If we love God, if we truly love God, we need to love others. There's no, I only love God. Because you know what, God? Your people are stupid. <laughs> Your people are annoying. I don't like these other people. Well, maybe I like, like one guy or one person. Everybody else is just so annoying and it's such a bother to love them. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. Jesus, in answering the question, what is the greatest commandment, gives the answer, love God and others. Love God and others. It's one commandment. And we cannot separate it. And if we try to separate it, then we're telling God, He's doing his job wrong. So what does that mean for us? Our final point. This is God's dream. To love God. and to, He wants to love us. And he wants us to love others. That's his dream. Let me tell you a story. Um, my, my two daughters... God bless them. They love each other, but sometimes they just, you know, if you guys have siblings, you understand, right? Sometimes they just can't stand each other. So one day they're fighting, and I told them this story. This was just, usually when they're bickering and fighting, I will just like raise my voice higher than their voice <laughs> and say, stop fighting. You're going to just, I'm going insane. Please stop bickering. You know, I just want to jump off a bridge. But this time, God, in his ultimate wisdom, gave me this amazing story. And I, and I say, hey, Cars, Kayla, let me tell you a story. And all of a sudden it got real quiet. I was like, God, this is working already. <laughs> so I told him this story. There once was a little girl who lived with her daddy and mommy. They loved her very much. They loved her so much that every night when the little girl would go to sleep, her daddy and mommy would tuck her in, and as they did so, they prayed, asking Jesus to protect her and to guide her. One night after they prayed, the little girl asked her parents if she too could say a prayer to Jesus. Her daddy and mommy said, of course. That would be great. Excited to do so, the little girl began praying, Dear God, please give me a little sister who I can hold and talk with and play with. In Jesus' name, amen. God, her
heard that prayer and told that little girl, I heard your prayer. And I want you to know that having a baby sister is a very big responsibility. Hearing this, the little girl with wide eyes replied, Oh. God continued, But I've been watching you. You know what? I think you're ready to be a big sister. And I'll be giving you a little baby sister real soon. But you have to promise me one thing. When she gets here, will you love her? The little girl excitedly said, I already do. I thought so. Meanwhile, God told another little girl in heaven, I have something exciting to tell you. In a little while, I'm going to send you to earth to be a part of a family. This other little girl replied, Oh, that does sound exciting. But from what I've heard, that world is kind of scary. God replied, Well, I am God, so I'm not going to lie to you. It is a scary place. (laughs) But you won't be alone. I'm going to be with you. And if that weren't enough as human beings are often prone to thinking, I'm also going to give you an older sister who's going to hold you, protect you. When you fall and skin your knees, she's going to ask if you're okay, and she's going to love you. A big sister who will love me? Oh, that sounds very nice, said the little girl. God said, yes, I've already spoken with her. And she promised that she would love you as her baby sister. I I got the angels, had them write up a legal contract, had her sign it. It's done. (laughs) But I want to ask you, will you promise to love her? I think I already do, said the little girl. Sure enough, a few months later, God gave the little girl to the older girl. And God gave the older girl to the little girl. And the two little girls, after having waited for what seemed like forever to meet each other, finally met for the first time and they became sisters. And like they promised God, though they sometimes have disagreements in this scary, broken world, they still also love each other deeply. And on many a night, when they go to bed, and you walk by their room, sometimes they can be heard talking with one another and laughing with one another and talking to their God in prayer with one another. We actually have pictures of these two girls. They finally meet. And you can see on her face, oh, it's okay, she's very happy. And the other little girl's like, whoa! It's better than I thought, next. <laughs> Two girls, two sisters. Okay? And here they are ten years later. God gave her to her, and God gave her to her, and said, love one another. You know, the Bible, when it talks about people in church, it's not an accident that God uses the language of brother and sister. It's by design. God is trying to communicate something. It's not because he ran out of words and said, ah, brother. (laughs) He thought about it. And when he wanted to describe how we are to relate to one another in the church, in the body of Christ, 
The best word he could come up with was sister, brother. And just as God gave Kayla to Karis and Karis to Kayla, so he has given Nancy to Norma. And Norma, he has given you to Wesley. And Wesley, he's given you to Norma. And Chris, he's given you to John. And Jeff, he's given you to Ron. And you know what he's asking? This is my dream. I love you. Love one another because I love him too. And I love her too. Our church, San Jose New Hope, is a church, whether it is now or not, we resolve, and I think all of you would agree, that we want to be a church that does God's dream. Amen? We want to be a church that does God's dream. We want to be a church that at every turn, we ask God, when we have a decision, God, what's your dream? Because we forget. I know I forget. And God will say, this is love. Not that you loved me or tried to work so hard for me, but I loved you. Ah, yeah, yeah, right. That's good. Thank you, God. I forgot. And then love one another. Right? You can't separate those two. He's given you each other so that you can do God's dream. Now, here's the thing. How can you love one another if you never spend time with one another? And therein lies the dilemma of this world and particularly Silicon Valley. Do I have time to live out God's dream? Or am I just living my dream? God's dream. He wants you to remember that you love him and he loves you. It's like jumping up on the I love you. I love you. He's trying to grab our attention. And then he's saying, now go love one another. I love that guy. Go love him. Go tell him you love him. Go tell him I love him. He needs to know. He needs to, he's forgetting. Go, go love him. And this, this dynamic that I'm describing for you, I hopefully I'm painting this picture for you, it's what we're trying to call the gospel life. This picture we're trying to call the gospel life. So when we say the gospel life, this is the idea. God loved me. We, he first loved me, not me loving him. How do we know what love is? He first loved me and sent his son to die for me. And as a result, I, wanna, I love God now. I'm able to love God now because he's poured his love into me and now I love others. That's the gospel life. Guess what? So we have the gospel life. We want to provide spaces, time. Hello? We want to provide space, time. <clears throat> Next one. For us to live the gospel life. And so we're going to call these things the gospel life group. Because it's this idea that you cannot have life. You notice how the gospel and life are combined. It's this idea that you cannot, we cannot have, no matter how hard we try, have life without the gospel. 
True life flows out of the gospel. And when we gather together, we want to be a family, remembering God's love, celebrating God's love, loving one another. If we want to do God's dream, this must happen. You cannot have a church that is doing God's dream if they don't love each other. And I'm not saying that we don't. In fact, I was telling you, and the, the steering committee can vouch for me. Remember last Sunday? I said, one of the things that I feel like our church has going for it is we genuinely love each other. To which I want to add, let's do it more. Because who in this world has enough love? Who in this world has too much love? Oh, too much love. We need more. We need to overflow. And going back to that verse, a couple slides before, guys. Sorry to, to snap, but I, wanna, I wish I had a clicker. We need to get a clicker. Never mind. Yeah, yeah, there we go. It says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us, and this is how the world can see and taste and feel and get exposure to God's love through how you love one another. How his children love each other as sisters, as brothers. Let's take some time to think about God's dream. My daddy's dream. Your daddy's dream. And ask him as you sit there and as Joe leads us in worship, God, how can I fulfill your dream? How can, how can I be a part of that dream? Maybe you're not even there yet. That's okay. Maybe you just need to remember that this is love. Not that you love God, but God loved you first. Maybe you need to remember that. That's fine. I, I remind myself that every day. No shame in that. So let's take some time to do that. Let's take some time to let God remind us of his dream, loving you, loving others.